Hi, I'm Dr. Gemma Newman, also known as the Plant Power Doctor, and I'm your host for the Wellness Edit with Holland and Barrett. In this episode, I'm really delighted to bring you leading sleep expert, Stephanie Romyshevsky. Now, Stephanie is a consultant physiologist and the director of the Sleepyhead Clinic in Exeter. And I found this to be a particularly enlightening conversation. Now, I thought I knew quite a lot about sleep. And I have to also direct you to an amazing sleep episode that we shared in series one with Dr. Guy Meadows and Narina Ramnikan. However, it was incredible. Stephanie actually brought a whole new sort of philosophy, if you like, on sleep and why Actually, some of of us might be worrying a little bit too much about sleep and how we can reduce our anxiety around it. She shared some interesting stories about her history and how she got into her specialty of insomnia and complex sleep disorders. And overall, I found it to be a really insightful conversation. She was hugely empathic. She was really knowledgeable. And I can't wait to share this one with you. If you found that you really enjoyed this one, do share it with me. Let me know what you think. And of course, share with your friends and family as well. Looking forward to introducing you to Stephanie Romyshevsky. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing really well and I'm really happy to have you on the podcast because sleep is a major issue for so many of us right now. And I think it's going to be so helpful to have your expertise. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So... Well, first off, how are you? How have things been over the last year or so or two? <laughs> it's a big question, isn't it? I'm well. I was very lucky because I could do everything I do online suddenly. So it was a bit strange for me to switch from seeing people face to face from doing corporate events in person. And then suddenly everything's online. But now I'm in a new way of working. So for me, it's kind of changed my whole entire career in a way. Wow. So would you say it's been, did it have its ups and downs or has it generally been positive? For sure. So um, for a lot of it, I was living in my house on my own. So I definitely understood how it felt to be on your own. But I was very lucky. I love my work. I'm very passionate about it. So I just threw myself into that. So for me, it was good. And I live right on the quay in Exeter. So going out for a walk, even if it was just once a day, I was very lucky where I was. So I kind of just feel really privileged to have had that experience. But it definitely wasn't easy all the way through at all. No, I think most people can definitely relate to that and finding those positive moments in amongst it all is helpful. But yeah, it has been challenging for so many of us. And you said you love your work. It's obvious that you do. You you have a BSc in psychology, MSc in behavioral sleep medicine. You specialize in insomnia and complex sleep disorders. What gave you that initial interest? It's a really good question. I was one of those weird people <laughs> that suffered from night terrors when I was little. Not weird at all, actually. No, not um, weird. Um, no, no, it's not weird at all. But it makes me laugh because I often treat it and I think, I know, I know, I know how this feels. So yeah, I, I had night terrors when I was younger and going through university. And I always found that really, really interesting neurologically, like what was going on. And then I had a really good experience come up for me where I was in my placement year at university doing my psychology degree. I knew I wanted to 
help people. I knew I wanted to work in neurology. I didn't really understand how. And then I actually went over to Harvard Medical School and became a circadian technician, which is kind of similar to a sleep physiologist. And I was trained up by them to work in their sleep division on these crazy sleep experiments uh, that we were doing all the blue light studies that you know we've talked about now and stuff for NASA looking at how to get an astronaut onto a 25-hour day because Mars isn't the same as the earth but yeah I had this crazy whirlwind experience being a sleep technician or a circadian technician over at Harvard and then I came back and I was like what Wow, what what do I do now? And so I was, I was going to say you yeah. you can't get much cooler than that. <laughs> no, no, it was, yeah, I was like, wow, I didn't really spend the year doing what I was supposed to do, which was go and do something in psychology. And although there was plenty of psychology to observe, it wasn't, it was more sleep physiology, sleep research. And so I came back and I had this amazing insight into sleep medicine. And I just thought, this is so cool. Why don't more people do this? And how cool would it be to help people in this way, which is something that we're not really taught in medicine, by the way. I did some research a few years ago to ask all the medical schools, you know, how much sleep research actually teaching doctors. And it was really low. It was like a median of an hour and a half. And so it made sense that I hadn't really heard of this area before, as many of us clinicians haven't heard of it. Yeah, I think you're right. It's something that I deal with so often in my clinical practice. And I've had to learn on the job, you know, read the research on the job, figure out how to help my patients on the job. And it's a shame because quite often I was told, well, just tell your patient sleep hygiene just have to practice mm. sleep hygiene. I was like, what does that even mean? Yes. Sleep hygiene. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I would love to have some of your insights. I mean, did you feel it, that it was your research that helped you get through your own night terrors? Or is that something that you kind of just grew out of in some senses? Or how did it work for you? So you just start learning. I mean, when you understand the physiology of sleep disorders, you start to understand. I mean, for night terrors, for example, they're so normal when you're growing up. When you're young, when you're a child, It's more freaky for the parents, not the child. The child doesn't usually remember it. And I started to understand what was happening and why and how I could sort it out. What I found more interesting is that in sleep physiology, if you are lucky enough to get educated in it by doing a degree in physiology, whatever, um, you're going to learn a lot about lots of complex sleep disorders like night terrors, narcolepsy. But back when I was doing it, you weren't learning a lot about the most common issue, which was insomnia and just everyday sleep problems. We weren't actually learning how to treat those. And that's what fascinated me the most. So I started off being very interested in the more weird and wonderful side of it. But then actually, as I moved forward and I was working in sleep disorder centers, I was learning that even when people with these complex problems were coming into us, they would say to us as I was hooking them up, so you put lots of wires on their heads to look at brain activity while they're sleeping. And as we were doing all this, they weren't asking me questions about their complex sleep disorder. They were asking me questions about, look, I know I'm here for this, but why is it that sometimes I can't get to sleep? Why is it that sometimes my brain is worrying? Why is this happening to me? And it was all related to the most common sleep problems that we all get. And I was like, this is weird. Why aren't we doing this? And so that's when I started doing the Masters in Behavioral Sleep Medicine, learning what else was out there. And actually, that actually there was some really good information that we were missing. It's not sleep hygiene. It's not, you know, you need to have a hot warm bath before you go to bed. None of this stuff 
is going to help you fix a chronic long-term sleep problem. So, you know, what is it that we can do? And I guess I kind of evolved into a behavioral sleep specialist, even though I did all of sleep medicine. And that's the bit I was most interested in. And when I started using the treatment for insomnia, I was like, wow, this is amazing because it was life-changing for the patient. And so I got to be part of this amazing process, not only that was life-changing for the patient, but the patients that were coming to me are everybody. So there's there was no like, there was no specific person. It was literally anyone from, you know, a dad of four, a retired security guard, an investment banker, MPs, lots of different types of people would come to me with the same sleep problem. Yeah. And that I found that fascinating. It is. I, and it, I suppose it's the human condition. Uh, <laughs> sometimes our minds can wear away at night, but obviously it's not necessarily always that simple. And I know that you run the Sleepyhead Clinic and when people have complex sleep needs, it will be important to seek help in the most appropriate way. But for our listeners... Is it possible to give them a few pointers? Because as you say, many of us suffer from insomnia from time to time. Is the advice the same for somebody who occasionally suffers from insomnia as it would be for somebody who's a chronic insomniac? Or are they quite different in terms of causality and then tips and and things like that? Yeah, so you, you make such a good point. So the first thing I would say is that sleep problems are entirely normal. And every single one of us needs to understand that we need to normalize sleep problems. Okay. Every time something happens in your life, whether it's physical or mental, whether it's something internal, whether it's something external in your environment. So stress versus an illness versus a new medication, you know, whatever's going on, menopause, bladder problems, chronic pain, whatever it is, it's going to affect your sleep. Sleep, just see it as something that just is part of your life. It is your, you know, and life's not linear. Your sleep's not going to be linear either. So that's normal. The first thing I would say to anyone listening is that when you first start getting a sleep problem, understand that your brain is so amazingly smart but without you changing any of your behavior, you will probably go back to normal. But it is our worrying about the issue that tends to change our behavior to strange techniques like things like sleep hygiene that usually don't work. And then you start having a chronic sleep problem. So I guess what I'm trying to say is in the first instant, if you have suddenly an acute problem, a sleep issue, the first thing to do is just don't worry about it. Give yourself a break. Know that you're going through a lot and that's why you're suffering at the moment. But please try not to change your behavior. So what happens is people will start to extend their sleep window because they think, oh my gosh, I'm not sleeping well on top of everything else. I need to sleep better. So I'm going to start going to bed early. I'm going to start lying in to catch up. I'm going to start passively resting more during the day because I don't feel that everything I do is conducive for sleep. And so suddenly you move far away from your normal sleep window. You move far away from your normal life and your body's a bit like, so you don't need a consolidated block of sleep then because you've literally just changed your whole entire life to cope with this problem. So essentially your brain being the smart creature that it is, you've reinforced the idea to your brain that this is normal, that you want a broken sleep pattern because you've done all these behaviors that actually, if we understood a bit more about sleep medicine, we would understand that they actually make the sleep problem worse. And then suddenly 
you've got a chronic sleep problem. So I guess the other point I'm trying to make is that the causality, it can be many different things. It will never be just one thing. Yes, there are common ones like stress, like menopause, like things like that. Yes, it's true. But they are just the triggers. The perpetuating factors tend to be us and our behavior, which is not right. (laughs) Interesting. Very interesting. (laughs) So... You know, if I have a patient that's coming to me and saying you know, that they have stress or that they're going through the menopause and their sleep has been affected, what do I say? How do I help them so, to go to sleep if, you know, if they decide, well, okay. I mean, I've, I've been telling people to make sure that they aim not to lie in, like to keep their regular routine as best as they can. But I mean, what else can they do? Mm. So in the first instance, I one, I'd say, look, don't worry about it. You're perfectly fine. You're healthy. Your sleep's going to work for you, I promise. But it has to alter right now because your body's doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things. So this is normal. So please don't worry. The second thing I would do is just concentrate, like you said, on a regular sleep window. But this is where it gets interesting. A regular wake time is a really, really good thing. If you think about your body and time, this is where your circadian rhythm comes in. So you've got a clock in your brain. You've got clocks in every cell of your body and they do things. So releasing hormones and everything else that we might need at a certain time. Now, if we keep mucking up timings, for example, wake up time, your body has no idea when to make you happy, when to make you sad, when to make you hungry, when to make you full, when to make you feel sleepy, when to make you feel awake, when to give you energy, when to make you more chill. You know what I mean? So actually that wake up time, try to see it as a reset button. So no matter what's happened to you, no matter how badly you slept or well you slept, or if you only fell asleep at five and your alarm is at six, wake up at the same time every day and you will notice that even when you've had a bad night, if you've been doing this consistently for a while, you will still be able to make yourself feel all right at certain times of the day because of the timings of things. Your brain is constantly doing things at the right time. If you keep changing that goalpost, that's why we sometimes struggle to lose weight, why we don't understand why you know, if we lied in, why is it that we aren't sleepy like usual at 11 p.m. at night? Well, your body thinks that you've had a whole extra two hours of sleep. It doesn't understand that you only went to bed at a certain time. It doesn't get that. Timing is everything to your body. So the wake-up time is super important, but this is where we get it wrong. We like to go to bed at the same time. And although you will probably find that starts to happen, you start to feel sleepy at the same time if you're waking up at the same time, you can't dictate that, especially reactively once you have a sleep problem. What you're really doing is you're telling your brain, even though it's not sleepy and it's quite anxious because perhaps this has been going on for a while for you, you want it to go and lie down in a dark room in the mere hope that sleep will just come. That makes no sense. So going to bed at the same time is not helpful. What we should do instead is go to bed when we're really, really sleepy. Yes, it's good to have a wind down. Get ready for bed early. That whole, that whole act of getting ready usually wakes us up. So do it earlier. Remind, get all the reminders out there that, you know, the things that, you know, you're brushing your teeth and you think, oh God, I forgot to undo the dishwasher or I've got to do the kids lunches for tomorrow. Go and do all that earlier so that you've literally got an hour or so before you think you might fall asleep where you're in your PJs, you're just chilling, you're watching your favorite program or you're doing something that you love that makes you happy, but keeps you content and nice and chilled. And then when you feel really, really sleepy as in dropping off, and that may be a bit late, for the first few nights, 
go to bed then and just literally slip off into bed and then wake up at the same time every day. So it's very different to what most of us are doing right now. Yes, that's very interesting. So you're suggesting that we all aim to stick to the same wake up time, but only attempt to enter the bedroom and go to sleep when we're actually tired. Yes. And most of the time, if you're being fairly regulated about this, you're being consistent, you will notice it will start to happen around about the same time every night. But in order for you to be like that, you've got to put the behavior effort in first. And probably it's going to make you feel rubbish before it makes you feel better because your body doesn't like change in the first instance. But after a while, I promise you, it will start to work. That is not to say we don't need a good sleep opportunity. So when we talk about sleep opportunity, when we talk about having an eight hour window each night, I make sure every single night, or most of the time, so 90% of the time, I've got an eight hour window. That doesn't mean I have to use it. It just means that my brain and me, we know there's this wonderful relaxing place in my house that I'm allowed to go to when I'm sleepy, that will be ready for me. And then when that alarm goes off in the morning, that's my sleep window done. And so it's there. It's just not that you have to force yourself to use it, if that makes sense. I think it does make sense. Okay. So because I'd heard people say that the hours of sleep you get before midnight are the most useful. What, what do you make of that? <laughs> So also there's been some quite recent research, but what we really need to understand is, first of all, when we look at research around this kind of thing, right now we have no cause and effect data. So a lot of the research out at the moment isn't really telling us what we need to know. There's not enough research been done on this. But what we do know right now is that everybody's sleep window will probably be slightly different there is no point. I mean, even if that research was true right now, if it was accurate, are we saying, okay, we've just realized that everybody should be going to bed at 10. Okay. So everybody go to bed at 10. What do you think will happen? I'll tell you what will happen. We will have even more of an issue with insomnia than we do now. And let me tell you, there's at least a third of the population right now having insomnia symptoms. So are we saying by stamping that recommendation on everyone, you know, what are we saying? I very much worry when we put these very strict regiments and recommendations on people, because if you think about human behavior, we don't understand what it might mean to get to that 10 p.m. bedtime. So what would we do? Well, logically, okay, well, I'll go to bed at 10. And then what happens? We get anxious. We increase our heart rate and our temperature. Exactly the opposite of what you need to do to go to sleep at night. But I would argue the other thing to point out here is that we have different stages of sleep, right? And we have cycles of sleep. So all the way through the night, you're going through on average 90 minute cycles of sleep. And within that cycle, there'll be stages of sleep. Now, all those stages are important. Okay. But you do have deep sleep and REM sleep. They're two different types of sleep. You will have more deep sleep. So in very rudimentary terms, that means that your physical restoration, your cell restoration, growth hormones, tissue repair, all that stuff, immune response, everything, uh, your cytokines, proteins, everything's happening in your your deep sleep, you have that more in the first half of the night. So you might think, okay, I need to go to bed early. That's happening in the first half of the night. But interestingly, REM, which is again, very rudimentary speaking, it's for your more emotional processing, more psychological health. Let's look at it that way, memory consolidation, everything. If we looked at it that way, that's happening more in the second half of the night. 
So actually, they're both really important. And actually, then on top of that, just to layer it even more, we all have a slightly different circadian rhythm. So some of us are morning people, nighttime people, and some people are somewhere in between most of us. Even if we think we're morning people or evening type people, we're probably more in between. It's probably more like behavior that's making us that way. But if you put all those things together, actually, you just need what you need. Everybody is entirely different. And we need to spend less time worrying about this stuff because the worry and the anxiety is more dangerous than one night of poor sleep. So in summary, let's relax, (laughs) uh, keep the same wake time and go to bed when we're feeling tired. I think, you know, you said something really interesting. A third of us are having trouble sleeping. Why? Well, because I think recently as well, we have really got excited about the area of sleep. Now, without the correct education on sleep, what that means is a bit like the food industry, suddenly we get this massive influx of information, right? And so we get very excited about an area, but then we all start to think we need to do something about it. Even if it's not broken, we're like, okay, I'm going to start doing this. And so you start to fill your day with all these rituals and routines and sometimes obsessions really, which actually don't lead to more sleep. And so in a way, we may have created some of this ourselves with the sleep tracking out there. I was going to say, are you saying that sleep trackers are no good, Stephanie? (laughs) I'm not saying. (laughs) So first of all, absolutely not. We need to work with technology. Technology is a part of our lives and we can definitely make it work for us. But I definitely don't believe in the sake of tracking for tracking's sake. Like I will track somebody's sleep when I'm trying to work with them to help them get to a certain goal. But I wouldn't ask them to do that every day, just like I wouldn't track anything in my life every single day for no reason, unless there was a point to it and there was a goal for it. And I understood the science behind that goal, like I was doing the right things to change it. And that's the issue here is that we're having a lot of trackers out there and they might say to you, you don't have enough deep sleep. Well, did you know that probably you don't need more than an hour and a half deep sleep every night? So actually, how much were you assuming, you know, and so then you're like, oh my gosh, I need to do something to fix my deep sleep. And you don't even know, I don't even know how you would fix your deep sleep without affecting the rest of your sleep. So really, you have to do something with your entire sleep in order to just improve the whole quality. So I think there is this idea that maybe when we get really excited, especially about an area of health, we get this influx of information and not all of it is the correct information. I think also, again, the education side of it, sleep is kind of like the forgotten area of medicine. And so if you think about doctors and nurses and psychologists and, and you know, anyone who's training to do something in medicine, they're not getting a lot of training. And now if the people you're going to aren't getting the right training, then how is the public supposed to understand what to do? And so we've kind of, this culture around sleep is really interesting. If there was something wrong with your eyes, would you ask your friends and family or go online to figure out what the problem was? No, you would go to an optician and you get your eyes tested. But when you have a problem with sleep, what do you do? Ask anyone and everyone and Google. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so suddenly you've got this plethora of information, which you believe is right, right? Because when we Google something, we believe that it's right. And actually, a lot of the time, it's not. Let me tell you one thing that's really important. Relaxation does not lead to sleep. Say what? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So 
I'm not saying relaxation is not good for sleep. So relaxation is a wonderful, wonderful tool. Okay. And we can all relax in very different ways. There's no prescribed way. Everybody's different. Okay. It is a very good proactive way if you're participating in relaxation every day to avoid sleep problems. But if you already have one and you're using a relaxation method as a reactive tool to fix a sleep disorder, you won't get what you want, which is sleep at night. And the problem with all these advertising campaigns at the moment for various different things saying, this can help you sleep. It's not that it isn't helpful for sleep, but it's probably not going to fix a reactive problem. And when do we seek these things? We don't seek them proactively. Oh, you know what? I think I should relax more, even though there's nothing wrong in my life whatsoever. We only look for them once we have a problem. So we have the sleep problem, then we go looking. And so then the advertising that may not be really directed right at us specifically with the sleep problem it's more directed at everyone to chill out more relax more which we definitely need to do we start using it and then when it doesn't work how does it make you feel makes you feel really inadequate because the rest of the world apparently they can relax and they can sleep well and so suddenly you're feeling very isolated now you're feeling quite lonely and so suddenly you don't just have a sleep problem anymore you've got a mental health issue and that's the scary part that's what worries me is that when people go and seek out all the information and 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 you know they're they're doing they're making it worse and then they're actually adding on more anxiety and more worry and that's really sad when people come to see me, this is the sad part is that they come to me as like a last ditch effort. And I'm like, but the rest of the stuff you tried had no evidence behind it, no science. But they're like, I've literally tried everything. And I know they have, but just not the stuff that actually works. Okay. So let's get to the nitty gritty then. (laughs) What do people try that doesn't work apart from relaxation and lions? So, well, first of all, put it this way. The way to answer that is to understand what creates a sleep problem in the first place. So anything can create a sleep problem. So a trigger, any trigger in the world, you can think of something that's created a sleep problem for you and it will be very different to one that's for me. So we're very unique like that. So you have a trigger that can cause a sleep problem, but the thing that makes it worse and makes it consistent, perpetuates it, is our own behavior. Now, the way your brain works is it learns. Your brain is trying to help you. So if you keep, let's do a very simple example. If you wake up at three in the morning because you are hungry, logic says eat something and then you'll go back to sleep. If you do that too many times in a row, your brain will start waking you up even when you're not hungry, because it thinks you want to wake up at three in the morning to eat. So you've trained your brain to do that. So if your brain understands that what's happening to you is a pattern, or if you understand that it's a pattern, then maybe you'll start to realize that there is no anecdotal magic thing that you can do in a few minutes, in an hour, in a day, in a week even, that's going to resolve a problem that you have built up over three months or longer, in most cases, 10, 20, 30 years or longer. So when you start looking at it like that, then you start to realize that whatever approach you do take, it's got to be consistent and it has to be the right behaviors. Therefore, nothing reactive, nothing that you do on a specific night, if you've had the problem for longer than three months, which is when we would say it's chronic, is going to suddenly 
switch it so that you sleep well, but not only do you sleep well, but you sleep well from then on for the rest of your life. You've got to do something over a bit of a longer period of time. So with that in mind, there is something we call it CBTI, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy for Insomnia. It is not the same as CBT for depression, anxiety, chronic pain, anything else you can think of. CBT is just an umbrella term for all the cognitive and behavioral strategies that we know, very evidence-based for a specific area of medicine that will work. So if you think about it like that, it's just a very umbrella term. It's not really telling you what it is. So what is it? Well, the first thing we understand in sleep medicine now, based on everything I've just told you, is that our beliefs around sleep are wrong. And if our beliefs around sleep are wrong, then our behaviors are going to be wrong. And so we got to correct the beliefs. So we need to educate you in sleep medicine. So first things first, turn everybody into a sleep expert. That's your first goal. Your second goal is there is one big key element of these sleep issues that people don't understand. And that is reducing your sleep window actually fixes sleep a lot quicker than if you extend it. So we actually put people through a process called sleep restriction therapy. So this is the crazy part often blows a lot of people's minds. Sleep deprivation in mild amounts and small amounts can actually improve your sleep, not make it worse. Like we actually use sleep deprivation to fix insomnia. How, how crazy is that? Yeah. <laughs> because we need to restrict you a little bit because we've got to build that drive up again because your sleep is a homeostatic sleep drive. The more you're awake, the more you're likely to sleep. So we need to manipulate that idea in sleep medicine in order to help you sleep again. But we're so terrified of sleepiness because we believe it is going to end badly that we try to alleviate it straight away. But sleepiness is a beautiful thing. If you feel sleepy, and I don't mean fatigue here, I mean that literally that ability to nod off, that means you have not lost the ability to sleep. And the sad thing about a lot of people is they feel they've lost that ability, which is horrible because it makes us feel out of control again and very lonely and isolated. And so once we've done that, that is when after you've actually improved the duration and quality of your sleep at night through a bit of sleep restriction, your beliefs have changed. So we've got you doing some healthy behaviors and we've stripped you from all these behaviors that you thought you should be doing, but actually no good sleeper has ever done those things. They're still going out and having a, an espresso after dinner or, you know, every now and again, and they're still going out and hanging out with their friends and having a good time and they can sleep well. So you don't need to do all those things that everybody keeps telling you, the 20,000 top tips to sleep well you know, you can actually live a life. So you've learned all of that. And then, of course, we do need to teach you a little bit about, okay, how do we stop this from happening again? So we've taught you a very reactive way to fix your sleep condition. Fantastic. But how do we avoid actually it getting this bad again, so that you don't end up having to do these things, which by the way, are not easy. That's why we exist as sleep specialists to help you through it. So what do we do? Well, that is when we look at the proactive stuff. That is when we look at how are you processing your day? How are you emotionally processing, winding down, relaxation? That's when you do need to learn those tools to stop you from ever having to go down this way again. And to understand that the minute you start getting worried and anxious, the minute you start changing your behavior, that's when you're going to end up with a problem. Yeah. Wow. That's so interesting. So what you're saying is that actually, if you can start using tools for relaxation as a way of prevention that's going to be particularly helpful especially for those who've suffered from insomnia in the past and want to avoid having it again mm. okay so what about people who get really sleepy in the afternoon kind of like oh I feel really tired I just need a little nap and you know that they've been having issues sleeping at night would you say no hold off on the nap and wait or so 
The interesting thing is uh, the answer is complicated because sleepiness during the day, actual sleepiness is not normal in an insomnia patient. So that's interesting, isn't it? Even though the quality and the duration of their sleep has been impaired, but their brains think that that's a pattern and that's the way they want to thrive now, they get used to it. And so actually they're more likely to be in a state of hyperarousal where actually they're more sensitive to their environment and they couldn't nap if they tried. They want to desperately, but they can't. So in that case, those people are probably not having this problem. If you are significantly sleepy during the day on a regular basis, and that's important because some of us get sleepy every now and again because we had a late night. You know what I mean? That's different. I used to have my biggest naps during revision for exams. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, that, totally, that makes sense. I, I understand. But if you are sleepy during the day, no matter what is going on at night, if it's consistent and it's happening every single day, either something is actively restricting you from sleeping like a baby, which makes sense, doesn't it? Or if you're actually like, you know, but I am getting some sleep, even though it might be interrupted and might not be great, I am sleeping. Or maybe you don't foresee that there's a problem with your sleep. Then actually it is important that you go and get that checked out because it could be a sign of an excessive sleepiness type of disorder like sleep apnea or other sleep disorders, which are rarer, but they are there. So it's important to get that sorted. And then naps, taking naps, whether you should or not. Well, a short nap in the first half of your day, if you don't do it often, is fine and can actually improve your performance and make you feel better. But that has to be 30 minutes or less. But if you start using naps as a way to compensate for something that is happening to you at night, you're only teaching your brain that you suddenly don't want to sleep at night. You want to sleep in the day. Mm, okay. Complicated. So occasional, <laughs> occasional naps in the first half of the day Not so as bad. a power nap, yeah. less than 30 minutes, that can kind of be okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is, this is really interesting. Okay. So you've talked to us quite a lot about all the things that we've actually got wrong about sleep, like things that probably people hadn't really realized. Would you say that there's any other really important tip for people to take away if they've been struggling to sleep, apart from the things you've already said about making sure they have the same wake up time, really prioritizing, not stressing about it mm. because sleep problems can happen to all of us, making sure that you don't push yourself to go to bed too early, not necessarily pushing yourself to use a sleep tracker all the time, all of the things that people are told to do to help them relax, to solve a sleep problem may not be that useful apart from for prevention. Mm. Is there anything else that you think might be really interesting for our listeners to know? Of course. So oh my, there's so many things we could be speaking for hours, but I will give you a very, I'll give you the most influential, of course. So before you would seek help from a sleep specialist. So obviously if you really are struggling and you feel you've tried a lot of this before or you just feel you need the support, it's really important that you try to get in contact with your GP or a sleep specialist. Really important. Somebody who's got training, who's worked clinically with complex sleep disorders, really, really important. But before then, before it gets to then, of course, so one of the most influential factors on us human beings is light. And none of us, especially in the UK, we are not very good at getting good lights at the right, you know, at the, consistently through the year, especially at the moment we're in the winter. And so we aren't getting enough light in the morning. And because of the way we've kind of evolved into having all our technology in the evenings and being as loud as we can and, and doing all this stimulation of our brains and looking at bright things late in the evening. And isn't it funny? Cause in the morning, we're usually creeping around in the dark, trying not to wake anyone up. 
But actually, we're designed to have light exposure in the morning. If you can wake up at the same time every day and expose yourself to bright light, you have the ability to not only make yourself feel more alert, but happier. So seasonal affective disorder, best way to correct that. You can feel better in terms of your hormone regulation for your appetite will be better, which is fantastic. Um, It also regulates your temperature. So Light is everything, but of course, the absence of light is also very good for us because it helps improve our melatonin, which is going to help us fall asleep. So it's the sleepy hormone, which actually helps initiate that physiological process of us then falling asleep. So of course, you want bright light in first thing in the morning, and you do need fairly good light all the way through the day. But then as you get to late afternoon, early evening, you want to start changing that around so that the lights in our house are maybe more the lamps rather than the overheads. And probably if you're looking at screens, just reduce the brightness. Yes, we have all these blue light filters, fantastic. Also try to remember that if you've been doing something all day and you take it into the evening like work, you're training your brain to want to be more stimulated later in the night and therefore you're going to have to need time to wind down. You're going to be falling asleep later. So light is really important and what you do and when. Remember the timing of things. Your brain is constantly watching you. It's observing you all the time. This is how I look at it. It's observing. I think there's a film, isn't there, with all these creatures in your head that like uh, figure out all your emotions it kind of is like that it is inside out (laughs) yeah inside out like honestly think about it that way it's constantly looking at your behavior and thinking huh she's working at 11 at night for the last two weeks do you know what we're going to do we're going to increase her cortisol we're going to reduce her melatonin we're going to add a load of chemicals into the system to help her with this because she clearly wants to do this and then the minute that you put your books down and you don't want to work late anymore and then you're like why the hell can I not get to sleep I am exhausted I've been working so hard for the last two weeks why am I so wired but tired It's all in our behavior. And yet we see our physiology as very mysterious. And yet our behavior dictates a lot of it. So light exposure and when we do things, the timing of things is really important. And then if you do wake up in the night, and this is usually my most common question is, okay, okay, Steph, I now know what to do over a consistent long period, but I'm still frightened of when I wake up tonight and I can't go back to sleep. Well, be sort of content in the idea that you are doing the most influential things now, which you are going to have to do over a few weeks to see the result. So you're, you're there, you're doing really well. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. I think this is really important. To have chronic sleep deprivation is very different from having insomnia or sleep problems in general. Okay. So most people think they have chronic sleep deprivation. And actually when I see them in clinic, they're not dropping down dead. Nothing bad is happening to them. They're not getting super sick from sleep deprivation, but they are getting mental health issues. They're getting very anxious. They're getting very depressed and they have a chronic sleep problem for sure. So when you wake up in the night, best thing to do is think to yourself, how am I feeling right now? Okay. I'm not sleeping. I'm wide awake. It's not great. I don't want to be, but how am I feeling? If you're feeling super anxious, you've got a different problem at that point. You need to alleviate your anxiety. A lot of people will be thinking, how do I get back to sleep? Even if they're about to have a panic attack, they're still thinking, 
but how do I get back to sleep? And in my head, I'm thinking there is no way you're going to get back to sleep because you're in a, in a very sort of high aroused state and we need to bring you back down. So actually leave the bedroom, go and enjoy yourself again. Continue with your evening as if it's still the evening. Understand that your body's not going to feel sleepy. You're doing all the right things already. Your behavior's changed and you're on your, your route there. So all you've got to think to yourself is, I know that the more wait time I have, the more that's going to lead to sleepiness. Even if that doesn't happen tonight, I'm still building that nice sleep drive. And that's eventually going to start working for me because I'm now doing all the right behaviors. So I don't need to worry about this anymore. I just need to enjoy myself. So I'm going to go and leave the room. I'm going to go and do something I love. And I'm not going to worry about this anymore. I know this is easier said than done, by the way. But it is important that somebody says this because a lot of people aren't. What they're doing is saying, oh, if this happens to you, I want you to quickly do this weird ritual or I want you to uh, take a sleeping pill or I want you to do this quick relaxation technique. And all your expectation is that that's suddenly going to fix things. And when it doesn't, it actually makes you feel worse. And that's what I worry about. I just want to alleviate how people feel and make them think, you know what? I'm doing really bloody well and my sleep is really good, even though it's not great right now. I'm still here. I'm still alive. These things that I fear, they haven't happened to me. So actually, I'm all right. Do you see what I mean? I do. I think that's a lovely way of describing it. And I can hear the empathy in your voice. I think it's clear to me that you've obviously had a lot of experience in helping people through these kinds of issues and reassuring them that uh, they're doing a good job. And I think it's been actually really therapeutic just to hear you talk about it. I think this is going to be really helpful for a lot of people listening that might even remind them, okay, I might listen to this interview again (laughs) to help me. Uh (laughs) Oh, thank you. So no, it's been really good to hear that. And I mean, is it useful for people to just rest? Like if they wake up, and they, they remind themselves that they're doing well and that they don't need to worry about this lack of sleep. Could they tell themselves that it would be okay just to rest or do, is it better for them to leave that environment? I think it depends where you really are on your journey. If you have got a lot of anxiety and stress related to this, I do think it's good to leave the bedroom because your brain makes those very strong associations between the bedroom and feeling stressed or just being awake. Oh, she wants to be awake and just rest in a dark room. Actually, it's still sending signals to the brain that's kind of like, oh, she wants to be awake. But at the end of the day, if the thought of leaving the bedroom, sometimes when people have very high anxiety, even the thought of leaving the bedroom because of their beliefs that aren't right about their sleep, it seems quite a stressful thing to leave. Like, oh my gosh, that's going to wake me up further. So if you're in that place, then absolutely, as long as you're doing something to just make yourself feel better in the moment, I think that's a good place to start. I'm here to teach you the gold standard. So I'll always tell you what the absolute influential thing, the thing that really is going to start to work for you but in the meantime absolutely that's definitely a stepping stone fantastic Stephanie that's been brilliant I think we're going to have to round things up now but it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation I guess to finish it would be worth asking you this is called the wellness edit podcast so do you have any particular wellness non-negotiables or things that you think are really important for people to take away over and above all of the amazing nuggets that you've shared already yeah I guess one thing I would say it's still related to sleep I'm sorry I'm so obsessed with my subject it's more (laughs) that 
you know what? Even I get sleep problems sometimes. And if you ever listen to anybody who tells you that they don't get sleep problems, it's not real. It's not normal to be able to get eight hours consistently every single night. Life happens. Your sleep's going to have blips. That's totally normal. I reckon if I hadn't studied what I did, I probably would have an insomnia problem myself, understanding why it happens. So just remember that we're all human. We're not robots. I don't expect that any of what I've said today would be easy to implement. But if you can, I promise you, you will actually see much better results. So that's kind of what I would add. That's a lovely addition. Self-compassion all the way. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Stephanie Romyshevsky. You've been an absolute joy. And for people who want to find out more about your work, they can look at Sleepyhead Clinic. Is that right? Yes. So we've got sleepyheadclinic.co.uk to actually see me. I've actually launched a program so you can do something online with me as well at sleepyheadprogram.com. And yeah, you can just contact and, and ask me some questions and we can go from there. Fantastic. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Stephanie had a really interesting outlook around sleep. And one of my main take homes from this conversation was that actually it may be important to reduce our sleep window if we want to achieve long-term results, especially if we suffer from insomnia regularly. So aim to relax Um, be kind to ourselves I loved her message about self-compassion and trying not to become perhaps somewhat obsessed with sleep apps or certain routines that we think will fix our sleep actually one of the most important things that we can do is to be kind to ourselves and keep that regular morning routine but actually maybe step a bit later until we're actually sleepy before we go to bed really really interesting stuff did you find that as interesting as I did if so do let me know comment on the socials and do remember you can find all episodes of the wellness edit on your favorite podcast platform as well as via the Holland and Barrett website at hollandandbarrett.com. All views are those of our guests and not Holland and Barrett, unless explicitly stated otherwise. Any reference to brands and or products should not be considered as an endorsement.